I just wanted to um, <clears throat> say to you when we're before we start, just uh, this, um, like when I think about singing these songs with you, uh, it is always encouraging to me uh, to know that you believe them, you know, and to know that uh, the people leading this today believe them, and to um, think that. Uh, it's not just a Christmas season where we kind of come together and, you know, all these people show up that don't really believe these things. But I, I just, being around you guys always is an encouragement because I think you do believe the truth and love the truth and want to be here because you trust in what Christ has done for us. And so uh, it's encouraging. And I always think about that because every week we try to provide an environment where your heart will not only be lifted up towards God, but it would be you would be thinking about others and blessing them that are here and and even thinking about those who don't know the message. And you guys, uh, I think you do and you love it and treasure it and your children will um, be blessed uh, because they will sit around with people who love and know the truth. And that's such a wonderful thing. I just want to commend you for that. It's something I'm thankful for. And we delight in it, and it's a blessing. So let me pray for us, and then we'll start. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask for wisdom to understand more clearly, maybe so we can share with others. Maybe we share with our families. Maybe we understand more clearly today so that we can, for the first time, maybe believe it ourselves and understand the glorious gospel and what it means to live in light of it. Pray that it would change our relationships with others as we consider uh, your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So we are just doing a, a sermon that's not normal, like what we would normally do. Uh, we're just going to take a topic and trace that out, um, rather than what we normally do would be working through book after book and, and kind of doing that. So we are going to think about this morning what we're calling the scorecard uh, of your life and how you consider what, um, what it means to... Uh, understand that like because all of us have different ways that we've used scorecards in our lives but as you think about that we're going to think about like what our scorecard is how God measures things and then really we're going to be talking about like how does that relate to your life with others and so uh, as you think about that for a moment some of you have played on a ball team I'm sure here uh, some of you kids are sitting here this morning you've played on sports teams and you maybe some of you keep up with stats and scores and you know you're like oh yeah we had this kind of record maybe you keep up with a a, a team that's like a, a college team and you know their record and their people and who has this and how many yards they passed this year whatever I mean there's all kinds of ways that you can measure things um, some of you maybe like school really you know you really like school and you like to keep up with your grades and you say something like oh I had all A's and you're really proud of that Mom and dad are, and they're smiling, and like, oh, they had all A's, you know, and everybody's kind of, uh, I guess you could say, happy about that, and uh, that's, that's a good thing. I mean, you're glad, I mean, it's good that um, you compete on the field, and it's good that you pass your tests, or not just pass them, but excel in those things. That's all things that we think are, are valuable. Um, some of us like the outdoors and hunting, and so maybe you say, oh, I killed this many ducks, or... I killed this size deer, and so you're like, well, this year I got an eight point, or you might say something like, you might do it in a more specialized way, where you're like, oh, it, it's a 110, the score is 110, or 120, or 130, or 140, 
you know, and all those kinds of things. And you're thinking about how many things that you have harvested is the way that some people would say that. And so that's one thing. Um, some of us might measure, depending on what you're doing, maybe you're in the season of life of raising your children, and if your children are doing well, then you're doing well. You measure it by that. And so it may not just be their grades, but just a lot of things, like how well are they doing? And so you can do that. Um, some of you might measure things by how many friends you have, or acquaintances, maybe, and uh, how much you uh, know about them, even. I mean, some people are like, you know, I know so-and-so, and Remember when back, da-da-da-da-da, they did this, and I know this, and I know that. I mean, all the different types of ways that we might measure things, you know. And if we're not careful, those scorecards like that we kind of are measuring ourselves against one another with make us think that maybe God approves of us because of that, you know. And uh, that's, that's, a real, that's a real deal. Think, oh, God must think of me the same way that mommy and daddy do and the same way that my teammates do in the same way that my coworkers do, in the same way that my spouse does, we, that's how God works. And uh, that's kind of a, not just a, a it, it's not just like, oh, that's not that good. It's like a really dangerous place to be because you don't want to live that way. You don't want to be oriented that way because here's what happens. If you think of God that way and you think of all your relationships that way, Generally speaking, you're going to think too highly of yourself because you're going to kind of create a scorecard for God. So you think really highly of yourself and pretty low of others. That's kind of how that works. And as a result, it becomes really, really uh, difficult. Relationships become difficult. Your understanding of God is all messed up. You know, all those things. So we just, you just want to think about that when you're thinking about how you keep score. Because keeping score is important, but we just need to understand what it, what, how to understand it and consider it. So, we're just going to walk through real quick God's scorecard. You ready? Um, and what I mean by that is God's record, if you will. And I'm going to give you a bunch of passages today. If you're a note taker, just you can scratch down the verses or get, I think the study guide would have those things in there. Most of the verses are there. But this is just, you start out and say, okay. There's a lot of things we could talk about God and say about God, but one of the things we could say is God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His holiness and justice. So that's just something if you were to say, okay, how is He and what's He like? First uh, Samuel 2, 2 says, There is no one holy like the Lord, for there's none besides you. There is no rock like our God. God is holy. And that not only means that He's separate from us, but He is also perfect. So if you were to like score God, you would say He is perfect. He, he, is, he is holy. He, he is not only distinct from us, He is perfection. There's nothing in God that's wrong. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, The rock, His work, is perfect, for all His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright, is He. And so you're saying, like, God is perfect in every way. When you think about that and you consider that, that, that's important for us to understand. There is nothing wrong in God. Like there are other religions and other people that would think about their gods and their gods were imperfect. Their gods were like them. But God is not like us. He is perfect in every way. That's why he can say in Leviticus and in 1 Peter, you are to be holy for I am holy. He's not joking about that he is completely and utterly 
holy and pure and right and just. Everything he does, there's no flaw in God. You could say you met someone and you said, they're the finest person I know. But they're not perfection. They are not the embodiment of perfection. They are not perfect people. Matthew 5.48 says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I mean, that is, that's shocking. I mean, that's a thing where you're like, man, what? How could someone ever do that? That's, and, and when you look at the end of Matthew 540, or in 5.48, it's right at the end there, but how could you be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect? In the context is God's thoughts and God's actions are always running together. If you were going down the railroad tracks with God's thoughts and his actions, they are on the same track. And then you're like, you are to be holy as God is holy. If you think somehow that you could ever meet up in the smallest degree to God's holiness, you, you have lost your mind. That's the epitome of foolishness. That is a complete lack of wisdom. So if you want to keep score, you have to say, well, what's the scorecard that is the ultimate scorecard that tells me where I need to be? Because I'm going to try to get there. Well, if you need to be right with God, you need to be perfect. That good with y'all? Y'all good with that? That make you feel like warm and fuzzy inside about how awesome you are? Now, we're going to look at something like what I am call a pre-Christian scorecard. And this is the way in which man comes to this earth after the fall of Adam. Let me just put it that way. After Adam and Eve were in the garden and they rebelled against God. They were not born in a, I mean, they were born in a state of innocence and now... All who come after Adam are born uh, not innocent. They're not born innocent. The sin of Adam affected the whole human race. The way people would say this is Adam's sin was imputed to you. You say, what? You mean I come here without ever making or committing any sin and I'm like still considered a sinner? Yes. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Romans 5.18, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, one man's trespass led to the condemnation of all men, and death through sin. So it's the idea, it goes on, the idea there is, his sin is put to your account and it affects your scorecard before you do anything right or wrong. That's where you stand. So we're going to say a pre-Christian scorecard is that, is in part that. You're a sinner by association. The other thing to say is you were a sinner by nature or you are a sinner by nature. So that's an important one to think about and to consider. When Adam sinned, 
all that come, all sons and daughters of Adam come here with a sin nature. They come into this earth in that way. There is no one that is good. You do not come here good. You come into this world with a corrupted nature. Romans 3.10 says there is none who is righteous. No, not one. Listen to Ephesians 2.3. Among whom we also live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You were by nature, not by nurture, not mom and dad were a bad example, although they were. You were by nature. By nature, you're corrupted. By nature, you're a child of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. So we start and say, hey, let's play with a scorecard. First, let's look at God's scorecard. He is perfect. There's nothing wrong in Him. Nothing corrupted. No thought that's wrong. No word that's wrong. No action that's wrong. God is perfect. You, however, are a sinner by association. And you are a sinner because it's by nature. You come here, and your sweet little child will show you that their nature is corrupted. If you cannot see that, it's because your so-called love for them blinds you. Okay, ready? And then you are a sinner. This is how you are in your pre-Christian state, by choice. That's a big deal to say for you to understand and grapple with. This is probably the easiest thing for you to understand unless you see yourself in such an odd way that you think you're insanely wonderful in every way. But you're a sinner by choice. I think it's important to say that. Um, you will make decisions, sinful decisions, bad choices. You do make bad choices, and that's just the reality. Now, I want you to hear some things about a sinful world that we're about the sinful world that we live in. Romans 1 speaks of this. There's a lot of passages about this that explain it. But Romans 1, 26 uh, through 32, it's a little longer. It says, For this reason God gave them up for dishon to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not fit, uh, see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Some of you are like, how did that get in there? What? Disobedient to parents? Okay, we'll keep going. Um, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. So that's just a picture of a degenerate culture. 
If you go to chapter 2 of Romans, what you see is the Jews who thought that they were kind of in a better state, he says to them, you who like say these things are wrong, you still practice them yourselves. So we are sinners by association, by nature, and by choice. God is holy. We are sinners. That, that's, that's kind of an important step to take. The question then is, um, what can we do about that? Answer, the incarnation. Answer, like the Christmas season. It's not what we can do about it. It's not what we can do about it. It's about what Christ did about it. So, we have to think about his scorecard. First, we would say that the sin of Adam was not put to Jesus' account, so he was not a sinner by association. He was not born of Adam. He was not a son of Adam. He was the Son of God. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit so that he did not associate, his association with Adam was he was not associated with Adam and he did not inherit a sin nature. Luke one thirty five says this, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So we understand he is not like us. Jesus was born innocent. He did, the, the sin of Adam was not placed on him. He was born by the Spirit. He was conceived by the Spirit. So, does that mean he was not tempted on this earth? Um, the reality is he was. He faced temptation. Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's an important thing to say. We've said God's scorecard's perfect. Ours is riddled with sin, and Jesus came in a state of uh, innocence, and he... And he walked in perfection, like he lived out a perfect life. He who didn't deserve to be punished took our punishment. First John 3, 5 says this, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So Jesus did not deserve to come to this earth and face what he faced, but he did it anyway, willingly, and he came to lay down his life for us. First Peter 2 says this, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Everything he did was right. His scorecard is perfect. It looks like what you would hope to have yours look like. But he didn't just do that so that he could come here and say, hey, you want a good example to follow? You want a good example to follow? Here's a good example. Now you can be saved. Just do what I did perfectly, and now you can be saved. That's not what the Scripture teaches. That is not the case. 
the Scripture teaches that you could not climb that ladder. That you couldn't make yourself right. That you couldn't make yourself perfect. That He who lived a perfect life died on the cross for the imperfect. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might be the righteousness of God. So that we might become, actually, is the way that says, the righteousness of God, so that we could be right. So then the question is, if we're going to keep score, we say, here's God's scorecard. He's perfect. Our scorecard is filled with sin. Christ's scorecard, you come back and say, he did what we could not do. He lived perfectly. He died a perfect death so that he could stand in our place as the one who is perfectly righteous, and then who paid for our sins. He did that. Christmas is meaningful, or it should be for you. It should be the most meaningful time for you to consider what He did. Now, you say, okay, so how do we respond? We respond by believing the Gospel. That Christ died according to the Scriptures. That He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. You respond by trusting in what He did. That's the good news. God is holy, man is sinful, and Christ died for sinners. Your response, embrace the message with a heart transformed by grace. Embrace it with the Spirit's power. Embrace that message. So what does a post-Christian scorecard look like? That's a big question. What does it mean to be in Christ Romans 3, 21-25. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is a righteousness that is received by faith. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified, listen to this, you're declared right in God's courtroom You are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You are justified by His grace as a gift. Your post-Christian scorecard is that it's stamped over it, justified, declared right in the courtroom of God's justice, I'm right. That's what he's saying. As a gift through the redemption, that is Jesus' blood paid for your sins, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, which means God was satisfied with the offering of the Son. He was satisfied. Stamp over them justified. And what that says is, Christ, uh, He took on your sin and He gave you His righteousness so that you could be right. Jesus purchased you out of the debt that you owed. He satisfied God's wrath on our behalf. So not only are we considered righteous, and truly our association with Him gives us righteousness, We also understand, Romans 5.18 says, 
that we have the spirit of adoption as sons. What it means is you're not just like stamped good standing. You're in the family. You are in the family. You're in the family. By the Spirit, working in your heart and life, you believe the Gospel. The Spirit of adoption as sons allows you now to be in the family. God's scorecard is holy. Your scorecard, pre-Christian, sinful. Christ's scorecard, perfection. He is the God-man living a perfect life and dying a sinner's death. You, receiving by faith this message, you are legally declared right with God. God's satisfied with you. You are in good standing. You're brought into the family. And not only that, you were in bondage to sin. But Romans 6, 6 and 7 says, We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we no longer are enslaved to sin for the one who has died has been set free from sin. You are set free from bondage to sin. That's an awesome truth. These are awesome truths for you to understand. You were once, Titus says, foolish and disobedient and led astray and slaved all these passions and desires and you spent your life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another, but when the, kindness, uh, but when the goodness and kindness of our God and Savior appeared, He saved us. He saved us. He saved us. Now, Here's the big question kind of to me. For some of you here today, this is what you really need to think about because you might say, I believe everything that you said. I believe that. I could have given that to you just that way. Point by point. We talk about it. We do it in our worship service. We explain it. We, we encourage people to grasp it. But let me ask you this. When you go out practicing it, when you go to live it, when that is true, that your scorecard's been made right by Jesus' work, how does that change the way that you deal with your spouse? Are you keeping score? I mean, are you keeping score? Are you sitting around thinking, which is crazy? I was talking to a friend this last week, and he, this family has uh, resources, and a lot of their friends have resources, and so it, it's like this: like I kept the kids this weekend, you got to keep the kids next weekend. Keeping score. Why? Why are you keeping score? I did this, you do this. I cleaned the house this day, you got to do this this way. You keeping score? Is it, are you holding that person in bondage? Are you like that one, remember with Jesus told the story, this guy that had been forgiven 10,000 lifetimes of forgiveness or whatever, an infinite amount of forgiveness, goes and grabs his, another servant and chokes him and has him thrown in prison because he owes him something. 
You're keeping score. How, how does that work in a marriage where you keep score? Is that a fun marriage? Is that a Christ-centered marriage? Is that anything about that gospel-related? Does it sound like the scorecard? That God said, here's the perfection, you're sinful, Christ came down to save you, and now the goal of your life is to hold each other in bondage. What kind of gospelless, antichrist type marriage is that? It's a lying, it's a, it's a, it's a corruption. It, it's a, it's a, not that we were justified by grace, but we've been justified by works, and therefore you will be justified with me by your works. It's not a gospel. It is not centered in the gospel. It's not rooted and grounded in the love of God being shown through Christ. You know, I told Ryan this week, one of the greatest gifts some of us could give to our spouse this year would be that you started believing the, in, the incarnation, that, it, that Christ did come to save you. One of the greatest gifts you could give your spouse Throw, throw everything you've got under the tree away. You start believing the gospel, and then you love your spouse in that way. Well, the greatest gift you could come is for you to bring that list, not the list that you want Santa to get you, but the list of all the things that you held against them and set it on fire before them. And never mention it again. Never bring it up again. Never. You threw it away. Why? Because Christ laid down his life for you. You stopped holding on to your grudges. They don't go away. 30 years of grudge. What do you want to do? Hold someone in contempt the rest of your life? It's insane. It's Christless. It's gospelless. It's not what the incarnation is about. The incarnation is about the greatest gift ever given that then allows you to give gifts that are of no great value in comparison to the gift. But they are valuable. They're little small offerings of saying, Lord, in light of what you've given me, I want to give back to this person. The reason there's strife among many is because for whatever reason, you claim to believe the gospel when it comes to your eternal salvation, but not when it comes to saving your marriage. What about with your children? What if they have spent their life trying to please you? Got such high standards for them. You've given so much for them. You've laid down this and that and the other, and now they feel like they have to live up to the standards that you have set that are almost like perfection to them. They do not know your love. They do not know your kindness. They do. It's, it's not wrong. My kids are held accountable, but, I'm, but we're striving to say, like, it's in, we're not trying. You're not, a perform, you're not somebody performing for me. You're, you're not doing, like, you're not trying to perform for me. If you are, you don't understand. I'll say to them regularly, like, you got in trouble. Does that change anything about my love for you? Zero. 
Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. I am not going to bear down on you for things that really have no value. Nothing's changed. We love you. We want good for you. And so I'm going to try to set before you the ways of life. I'm going to hold you responsible for doing what you ought to do. But at the end of the day, my love for you has not changed. You are my child. I delight in you. I want good for you. I'm striving to do well for you. All of those things. Don't live in this state of, for my children, I would say, do not live in this state of, does daddy approve of me if I do good things? I'll do, I'll play for daddy, I'll act for daddy, I'll put on a mask for daddy. Daddy don't want that. Daddy don't want that. He does not want you to put on a mask for him. Daddy wants you to know that you're as big a sinner as he is in a desperate, in desperate need of being rescued. And you, you, need, to, you need to be reminded of it because you need to be rescued. You need to be rescued like daddy needs to be rescued. And daddy needs to be rescued from himself all of the time. You don't have to dance for daddy. Just stop playing that game. It's a lie. Because you and I both know daddy's sinner, you're a sinner. Good enough? And Jesus came to save. Jesus came to save sinners. And so we treat each other with saying like, hey, we're in this relationship with two sinners. What about your neighbor? What about the people out there that are, maybe they're your friends, and they say, man, being around you makes it feel like we're constantly having to, I'll do this and then you do this. You ever been around somebody like that? I'll do this and then you do this and I'll do this and you do this. It's like, what kind of relationship is that? If I do something nice for you and you have to turn around and do something nice for me, it feels really strange. It seems like the relationship is based on a justification by works. You did this for me, now I have to do this for you. And as a result, it's not, it doesn't even feel like love. It doesn't feel like love. That feels like a works-based salvation to be your friend. Why do I have to live that out? Why would I ever want to live out a works-based salvation to be your friend? That's insane. That's not what friendship is. That's, that's insane. To keep up with that constantly, that I have to act for you, do these things for you, so that you'll approve of me and we can still be friends. Christless. It's a Christless friendship. We're after perform. That's the same in the church. Like, do you think I sit around and think, like, if I want your approval, and I'm going to try to gain your approval so that you can say, good boy, Jared. That's a good boy there, Jared. We love, yeah, you good. You good. I don't, come on now. I'm not doing that. That's not the gospel we preach. That's not the gospel we're trying to live out. That's not, the, that's not what we're doing here. We seek the approval of the Lord we seek to bless out of that approval others. You're only free to love when you embrace the gospel and you treasure it. You're only free to love people properly when you've truly embraced the gospel. The gospel is not transactional the way that you think. You live up to God's standards. He says, okay, cool, you can go to heaven. It's not how it is. The gospel is you didn't live up to God's standard. Christ had to come down. He left heaven and came to earth. 
to live what you could not live and die what you deserved. That's the gospel. Take that, carry it into your relationships, and it will bless your spouse, your friends, your children, your church, your community. It will change all of those things. Your life will be characterized by sacrificial service, not so you'll get paid back. Not so you get paid back. But out of like, because of all that God's done for me, I'll never be able to pay it back anyway. I want to bless you. It's a wonderful thing. Someone who has been given more than they've ever deserved, set free, they're set free to serve, forgive, treasure, build up, strengthen, bear burdens, because they've received infinitely more. The response to the gospel is to live in awe in worship. And worship shows up in giving your life back. In Romans 12, 1 and 2 says this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, you know what being conformed to this world is? Being conformed to this world is transactional. You do this for me, I'll do this for you. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Please, Lord, today, set us free. From a Christless, gospelless life. Set us free so that we might serve you and serve one another. In Christ's name, amen.